0: Welcome to Human Rights Education Now, a podcast series from Human Rights Educators USA. I'm your host, Bill Furnikens, a member of the National Steering Committee of HRE USA, a collaborative network to learn, teach, organize, advocate, and innovate for human rights education in the United States. This podcast aims to raise awareness about human rights education and invites listeners to engage with the worldwide movement to make human rights education a core focus of educational programs from preschool through higher education and in both non-formal and informal community educational settings. Today's program is a conversation with Yvonne Vissing, Professor of Healthcare Studies and Director of the Center for Childhood and Youth Studies at Salem State University in New Hampshire, United States. In this episode, Yvonne discusses the origins of her interest in human rights, how her work in human rights and the study of children and families has evolved over time, her scholarship on the rights of children, and her work as Director of the Center for Childhood and Youth Studies at Salem State University. How are you doing today, Yvonne?
1: I'm well. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Well, it's a great pleasure. We're very interested in
0: all your work on children's rights and a whole host of other topics. So let's get started. Uh, how did you first become interested in human rights issues and subsequently in uh, education about human rights?
1: I think that the experiences that we have in childhood shape us and how we think and how we act. And so during the 1960s, I grew up in the Midwest and I witnessed uh, racial and gender discrimination firsthand. And I lived through a time period uh, when people were fighting for equity, for inclusion, for acceptance um, and justice. Uh, Now my dad became the mayor of the city in Indiana. And he was uh, confronted by people in the community during the civil rights movement. And they wanted to know uh, why there were no black firefighters or police officers. And he agreed. We made no sense to him that there wasn't representation. And the uh, people came and protested. And uh, he Was glad, and someone said, You need to sneak out the back door and get away from them. And he said, Why would I do that? These are our neighbors and our friends. And so I grew up with that kind of view. Um, Now, I knew nothing about human rights education or human rights. We talked about maybe civil rights, Uh, we talked about women's rights, but there was no conceptual framework that we ever learned about the. Uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the CRC, I knew nothing about that. And when I first learned about the CRC, I was so excited and I took to it like a duck to water and uh, I was really engaged in it. Then I went to this conference and you were speaking and you were the one who introduced me to human rights education, for which I have been always grateful. So thank you.
0: Well thank you. Uh I want you to talk more about the relationship of your own scholarship to the CRC particularly the focus on dealing with children in vulnerable circumstances. How are those connected?
1: All right. I think that the uh CRC has the 3 P's as they call them of protection, uh, provision and participation. And I think that has really been important. Um there has been a sense of injustice um, that I feel about children who are um, without housing. Um, it's not their fault. And and I've done a lot of work with homelessness. Um, I've done work um, on child abuse. Uh, I've looked at all of these vulnerable groups. And if we adhered to what the CRC said in terms of making sure that children have the right provisions of education, of health care, of nurturing communities and families, uh, that would be a huge improvement. If we looked at safety, uh putting Children in harm's way at home because the place you're most likely to be hurt is abuse at home or with people that you know. Um, If we look at the uh, rampant use of guns in the U.S., which we are the most gun uh, friendly uh, community in the world, um, it is shocking. Uh, We're looking at extremist views and watching leaders. Politicians in particular saying terrible things about other people and using very disparaging language. Um, So, I think that the uh, importance of protection uh, and participation and having young people having a voice, uh, not allowing them to be represented on any uh, committees or liaisons or having the right to vote. Uh, you can go work at a job when you're 16. You can be taxed because you and it, you have taxation without representation, you know. Uh, so that I think that the CRC would really be very helpful in a ton of ways.
0: Of course, that raises the question as to why the United States remains the only member of the United Nations that has not ratified that document. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yes, um, when I had first traveled, uh, to, U- uh, the UK and EU, uh, on a Whiting Foundation fellowship, I had never seen, uh, children's rights, uh, respected like I did there. Uh, it was true in the way that they ran their organizations, uh, in terms of their policies and the way that people interacted with them. Uh, and I've given a lot of thought, uh, to this question that you ask it's very embarrassing to talk to people around the world who say why are you the only one who didn't you know ratify and so the standard is that we've got sovereignty and you know federalism in the government structure um but i think it is uh because we have never really invested in uh children as a entity or uh the human rights treaties uh, with the university of Minnesota's human rights treaty. Um, I teach this, a class in human rights and I have my students look at that. And the number of treaties that the U S has ratified compared to many of the other countries is very small. It's something like 17 um, out of like 77 or something. um And so we are not talking about human rights as a country. Uh, We're talking about privilege. All right. And I have my right. And uh, I think there's a misappropriation between privilege and uh, rights and a misunderstanding. I'll talk to my students and say, uh, did you have any rights as a child? And they said, well, yeah, I, I, I couldn't wait till I had the right to drive a car. No, you don't have a right to drive a car. You have an opportunity, you know, uh, to show that you are competent to do this. But just because you turn 16, it doesn't mean that you have a right to do this. And so I think people have a misunderstanding of what is a right and what is a privilege.
0: Well, you know, you raise an interesting issue about the idea of uh, the United States being unique, this sort of American exceptionalism argument that... Separates us around, but at the same time, or separates us apart. But at the same time, um, I would also argue there's been a failure of leadership at the executive level. When Bill Clinton's administration actually received the document, Madeleine Albright signed it, but it has never been sent to the Senate for ratification. So what's interesting to me is that under subsequent presidents, whether it was George W. Bush or Barack Obama, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, there's been no action from the executive to move that treaty for consideration. And I would argue that's a failure, but we'll see what happens in the future. I want to turn now to something else, though, that goes back to your own experience, and that is, you've had work in clinical experiences, too. And how do those connect to human rights education?
1: Yes, I thought I was going to start out and be a counselor, and I went to college thinking that I would be a psychologist, and uh, I ended up uh, becoming a sociologist because it became pretty clear to me over the course of my career that the way that we think or feel is really a product of our social environment. Um, it's the way we've been socialized. It's our community resources. It's the climate. It's the context. Um, and so I have tried in my past to eradicate child abuse. Um, I have tr- had a postdoc at the a National Institute of Mental Health. Um, I have a degree in substance abuse. I have become one of the nation's experts in homeless children. And, you know, Bill, I have not been solving child abuse, mental illness, substance abuse, or homelessness. All right. And it occurred to me that that's the wrong focus. It's social policy. Uh, We really need to be developing at uh, a national level the investments in the community, um, if you invest in the community and especially in children, I think that you would end up having a much stronger uh, society. And we would not be suffering from a lot of the problems that we're suffering now if we had.
0: Take that a little further and talk about like a specific issue, whether it's uh, substance abuse or homelessness. What would that look like? What would such an investment look like?
1: All right, let's take homelessness for a minute uh, because I have two books out on that. And the UDHR, the CRC, um, both indicate that people have a right to have safe housing. Having a safe place stable to live enables you to be healthy. You know, you can get to sleep because you're safe, you have a place to uh, keep your food so it's refrigerated uh you can cook uh, because you have a stove um you can stay clean because you have a bathroom that you have a sense of community that you can uh get to know your neighbors all of that would be great but what's happened is that um the government has decided to use a HUD definition of the housing and urban development um, that looks at a very narrow definition of what constitutes homelessness. And they in particular look at adults, single adults, uh, people with substance abuse problems or people with mental illness. They have not until recently um, considered families as one of their most fundable units. And you say, why? And so it's much easier to treat an individual than it is a family unit. It's much less costly, right? Um, You need fewer resources. Um, If you are able to prove that you are successful, um, then you will be able to show the uh, public that you invested their taxpayer money well. Now, the Department of Education, on the other hand, has defined homelessness in a very different way. And they have looked at children um, and have used a much broader um, definition, you know, of unaccompanied, uh, the couch surfers, uh, the people who are in their cars, and that uh, the HUD people use a point in time uh, count once a year in the winter. And all of the people Communities will go out and measure people. Well, they will measure people at the shelter because that's an easy uh, place to find people. Are they measuring people who are doubled up with other families? No. Are they measuring those that are hiding? No. If you have a child, you're probably not sleeping on the street in the dead of winter, right? You're uh, somewhere else where your children are safe. They don't count them. And so when I've had my first uh, research project, uh, I'm in New Hampshire, and I was asked by the Department of Education to go research homeless families. And they told me to go to five different schools um, to uh, do my data collection. And I went to one school, and the response I got was, we don't have any. <laughs> and I thought, well, why did the Department of Education send me to you? Because they picked you. Um, and what was happening is that they didn't count them because they didn't see them and they couldn't see them because they were using the wrong definition. Um, now, in Seattle, for, exist, uh, for example, they're using a different model in this one community. Um, and that so right now, if you have a lot of homeless people and there's inadequate housing because it's inaccessible, un- it's unavailable, it's unaffordable, um, then where are you supposed to go? Right, Some people have ended up being on the street and they have developed these uh, uh, tent communities and the cities don't like them. And the business people in particular don't like them because they are unsightly. Um, And so uh, they end up having the police come and um, simply destroy everything that's there. You know, they wrap up their uh, tents, their possessions, they throw them in dumpsters. And so then they have nothing. Right Now, who's going to pay for that? I mean, that's a a problem for the cities then because they end up having to pay for it anyway. Um, What they're doing out in Washington is that they are taking the police officers and they are community workers and that they get to know each person individually. And they live there and they get to know them and that they see that, you know, um, Joe Smith uh, needs uh, to have. Uh, housing and uh transportation uh they can see that mary needs daycare uh because she has three children and the daycare is unaffordable and so she can't work um they find that uh so-and-so has got domestic violence, and it goes on and on. And that they, instead of looking at people as an aggregate, they're getting to know them as individuals, and they're helping them, and they're finding that they are saving money, hand over fist. The quality of life for the people is great, Uh, that they do not have recidivism back into, you know, um, homelessness because they have given them the resources that they need. So that the way that we have approached homelessness in this nation um, has been a setup. Um, One more piece, because it's a topic I care a lot about. I think that when a community decides we're going to build a shelter, it is a very sad comment. It means that you do not invest in your community so that everybody is taken care of, right? That there are some people who are going to be expendable and that you can shove them to the street. So, for everybody who's had a hard time coming up making their mortgage payment, um, anybody and everybody could be homeless given the right set of situations that are just beyond their um, ability to control.
0: So, it's interesting how you're talking about this because this is not the conversation that's in the mass media. This is not the conversation on the nightly news. And I think it leads us to the idea of how you would educate. Not only in the formal public schooling system or K-12 system, but how do you educate the general public about the problem of homelessness and the potential for changing it? So would you suggest a couple of strategies for making what you just told me uh, more widely known?
1: Yes, um, I think that um, there's a woman named, a filmmaker named Diane Nyland, and she goes around the country and films homeless families. And it's firsthand, and you just go to our website and and look at them, you know. And it's very illuminating in terms of that. <laughs> people are now are not reading, you know, that they want the quick sound bite, you know, and that they're not looking at data, you know. Just tell me in three seconds what I need to know. And it's important to look at the data, and people are not putting the data up. Um, that they have um shifted on what's popular for the media to cover. Um, I think that I'm going around this uh, fall. I've been asked to do a bunch of presentations in my state at the public libraries about homelessness. And I will go and meet with people directly and talk to them about it um, and try to change it. We've put forth a grant. We don't know if we're going to get it or not, um, where we're going to, Uh, see if we get it, uh, to hire some of the uh, young homeless uh, individuals and train them as uh, participatory action researchers or or PAR, you know, and pay them and train them to go out and collect data and then go to the, uh, they've got a council of mayors in the state that look at homelessness. So we're going to have them talk to them. And I think that, Um, I'm just trying to use a different research strategy uh, to try to uh, gain some humanity around it.
0: So part of your job, you see, is to humanize the understanding of what homelessness is. So let's uh, shift over now to your center at Salem State University. What is the work that your center does and how does it connect to uh, human rights education?
1: I started a center for uh, children and youth, and I'm in the midst of trying to start a new center for human rights education. And um, I have been given a little bit of release time, like one class, you know, to do it. Um, And basically, no budget, no staff, no uh, facility. um, And I just do what I do because I care all right? And um, I do workshops, and I do trainings, I do conferences. Um, I used to have a conference uh, before COVID, and the facility would only hold 200 uh, people or so. After COVID, I mean, we couldn't put 200 people in a room together because they might die. Uh, so we started doing virtually, and I have had a 1000 people come, you know, and it's been great. And it is much I don't charge anything uh, for any of these events. Uh, We've created a children's human rights learning library that anybody can access. Just let me know. I'll send you the link. All you got to do is sign up for it. And we have hundreds of resources on it that are free, just waiting to be used by educators or individuals. I created a human rights class that the students, um, It's an optional class and it's always full and the students love it. And they say, why isn't this a required class? I never knew about rights. I never got taught about it anywhere before. And my feeling is that no matter what profession you're going into, whether you're um, a police officer, a social worker, um, a a biologist, you need to know about human rights, uh, your own and other people's so that you will be appropriate and professional. So I'm doing a lot of that kind of integration, you know, and I think that people are amazed and happy, you know, and feeling empowered instead of defeated or victimized. It's like, this is something I can use. Uh, so I think we're doing Do you, a little patience.
0: Yeah. Do you find... um that you have support from other members of the faculty at the university?
1: Yes, um, I think I'm at a cusp now, because if we can start this Center for Human Rights Education, um, I have great hope. I'm working with the new director for the Teaching Excellence Center. Uh, The provost has been supportive, the dean has been supportive. Um, I think that they see in this particular time of history, that it's really important that uh, we are attentive to human rights education. So for instance, I've got um, the HRE USA, I think is going to sign on to be an um, um, sign a memorandum of agreement and be a a formal partner. Um, I think that we can have People apply to be interns, um, that we can use graduate students to help, that we can do service learning, that HRA USA has a ton of resources that the people can access. Um, so does the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the AAAS in Washington. And I met with them yesterday, and they're going to do trainings for us. They have webinars. You have the wonderful podcast. There's all kinds of resources that are sitting there ready to be used. And all we have to do is like computer dating. We just need to link people up. Thanks for listening to Human
0: Rights Education Now. Our next episode concludes our conversation with Yvonne Vissing, Professor of Healthcare Studies at Salem State University. You can find additional information about this podcast series at www.hreusa.org. Each episode is available on the HREUSA podcast page, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Player FM, and Deezer. They will soon be available on YouTube and SoundCloud can also download each episode as an mp3 file if you have questions or comments about this podcast send them to christy at hreusa.org that's k-r-i-s-t-i at hreusa.org our podcast team includes host and producer Bill Fernandez executive producer Christy Redelius Palmer Editor Elizabeth Schwab, Sound Designer and Project Manager Sabrina Sanchez, Communications and Public Outreach Coordinator Jessica Terbruggen, and Production Coordinator Jasmine Chizu Gota. The Human Rights Education Now logo was designed by Kim Berering. Human Rights Education Now is a production of Human Rights Educators USA, a project of the Center for Transformative Action in Ithaca, New York.